19 through 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the, in the Lord. So remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in, in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord will. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Gracious God, loving Father, we pray, Lord, that you would take hold of our mind and our attention. And we pray that you would cause us to focus upon your word upon you and upon the glory of your Son. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us your word. We pray that you would give us the desire, the willingness to humble ourselves before the message contained within this passage of Scripture. That we would hear the message of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, not just as a message to them, but as a message to us as well. That we would be encouraged, inspired, directed, and guided by your Holy Spirit and by your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When it comes to human behavior, uh, human beings really are just giant processors, right? We are greatly influenced by what we take in through our eyes and through our ears, more so than anything else. Thus, if we fill our Minds, if we take in through our eyes, if we take in through our ears, uh, good information, what comes out in our lives is typically good behavior. This is even true of the unbelieving world. Unbelievers that at least take in relatively good information, I say relatively because information that is uh, absorbed apart from The knowledge of Christ can only go so far, but even in the unbelieving world, if they take in good information, it will affect their behavior in a positive way. But if they take in negative information, it will dramatically affect their behavior in a negative way. 
This, of course, has become, or this fact, this truth that I'm sharing with you has become a major concern for many uh, child psychologists and social scientists. Of greatest concern is what we see on television. What we watch as human beings, what children grow up watching on television, what they see flashing across the the silver screen, uh, what they see before their eyes in terms of video games or what they listen to with regards to music has had an enormous negative impact on our society, particularly in the United States. For example, I'll share with you some startling statistics that I discovered in my research for this message. I read an article written by the American Academy of Family Physicians. And uh, according to the American Academy of Family Physicians, regarding television in the United States, listen to this, 71%, 71% of 8-year-olds to 18-year-olds have a television in their bedroom in the United States. 71% of children between the ages of 8 and 18 So we just stream our culture's garbage right into their bedroom. Of that group, 50% of that same age group are also able to access television content online via mobile platforms such as smartphones. So it's not just in their bedroom, but then they walk, they take it on the go, and they've got their face in front of television screens, and TV shows practically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The result is that the average American child, by the time they reach adulthood, the age of 18, will have witnessed over 200,000 violent acts before the age of 18. And as though that's not shocking enough, 46% of television violence occurs in cartoons. 46% occurs in cartoons. Regarding movies, in the year 2003 alone, 10 million adolescents aged 10 to 14 years old, including 1 million 10-year-olds, had been exposed to that year's most popular R-rated film. R-rated. I seem to remember that that means 10-year-olds can't see those sort of things. Between the years of 2012 and 2017, there were twice as many negative themes as positive themes depicted in the 25 top-grossing R-rated films. The amount of violence in the top-grossing PG-13 films has more than tripled since 1985. So as once PG-13 meant something, now most of these PG-13 movies really should be rated R, if that means anything. In the year 2012 alone, PG-13 films contained more violence than rated R films. And the amount of exposure to violence dramatically increases with video games. So far, this is, all these statistics just have to do with television 
and movies. The amount of exposure to violence dramatically increases with video games. And that's just the impact that television can have on the culture. But what about the impact that it has on the individual, physically speaking? According to an article by newhealthadvisor.org, children who watch excessive television are, number one, more likely to suffer from lifelong obesity. Children who watch excessive television are more likely to develop vision problems. They often struggle to develop healthy social interaction skills. In other words, too much television, they don't know how to interact with real people in the real world. According to this same article, these children oftentimes will suffer from a low, healthy brain development. We wonder why our children keep scoring lower and lower in terms of education worldwide. Children who watch excessive television act out in more violent ways as they imitate characters that they see on television and they will struggle with lifelong, often they will struggle with lifelong healthy sleep and eating patterns. And then we look out at the world and we watch the news and we literally see our culture unraveling at the seams and we scratch our heads and wonder why. Why why is this happening? We don't understand. It's not a secret. I didn't have to search very hard to find multiple medical and psychological articles that have to do with this subject. Even worse, as though that is not bad enough, you know, it's, to some extent it's understanding when the unbelieving world behaves this way and then scratches their head and they can't figure out why little Johnny keeps getting in trouble in school. What's even worse is when believers scratch their own heads and wonder why I can't grow in my sanctification. Why can't I defeat these besetting sins in my life? Why can't I be a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better mother? Why can't I honor my parents as I know God requires me to honor my parents? Why can I not be more like Christ? Well, maybe, just maybe, it's because we spend too much time exposing ourselves to the things of the world and not enough time exposing ourselves to the things of God. Because just garbage in, garbage out. For this reason, Paul... The Apostle Paul wants to provide the church in Corinth with a visible example to follow. And this is important since really all they had were Paul's letters and his example. When you stop and think about it, 
you know, we, we wear these bracelets, we buy these bumper stickers that say, you know, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? But to a large extent, the church in Corinth would really know less about how to answer that question than we would today because all they had was the teachings of Paul. They had whatever letters Paul may have sent them. They may have had a copy of the Old Testament Bible, but they did not have the Gospels. You see, we have the benefit of at least having the Gospels. We have the complete canon. We can read first-hand accounts of how Jesus lived and how he spoke to people and how he treated people. We can read in the epistles how they describe Jesus interacting with the world and how they describe his character. But the church in Corinth doesn't have any of that. Paul knows that, and so he, he is writing to them, and in this section... He is wanting to provide them with a visible example for them to follow. And so, continuing in verse 14, Paul, after using biting sarcasm, right? We see that in verses 8 to 13. I mean, it was really sharp. To get their attention. He's trying to jar them awake. He wants to get their attention. Listen to what I'm saying. But now when we get to verse 14, Paul will soften his tone a bit. Because at the end of the day, he wants them to understand that he really does care about them. He really does love them. He really is just concerned about them. He's concerned about their soul. He's concerned about their sanctification. He's concerned about their church. And you can hear that in his tone in verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. What things? Verses 8 to 13. You know, I'm not trying to be hurtful, Paul is saying. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to humiliate you. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. I just want to help. I want to correct your behavior. As beloved children. Because you see, that's how Paul sees them. Paul sees them as his own children. He's concerned about them. They are young in the Lord. They are young in their faith. They're being sucked down the wrong path. He wants to bring them back. Is his goal. His goal is not to drive them off. His goal is not to shame them. It's not to upset them. It's not to offend them. It's to bring them back to the right path. That point is going to be very significant when we get into chapter 5. That ultimately, everything that Paul writes is toward that end. It is for their good because he cares about them and he loves them as his own children. And so he explains what he means by that, right? Because had he left it there... They could have taken that the wrong way. Like, what? The, there you go again, Paul, calling us children, right? 
Calling is immature again. Like, how, why are we the children and you're the daddy? I mean, how does that work? So Paul offers an explanation in verse 15. Four. So here's why. Here's why Paul just said what he said in verse 14. For though you have countless guides in Christ, literally the Greek countless guide means 10,000. 10,000 guides. It's really just hyperbole, right? We use that kind of language as well, even in our, our modern American culture, right? I mean, I must have said this to you a thousand times, right? Really? Probably not. Um, I know as parents, sometimes we feel that way. But when they're only four, we probably haven't said it a thousand times. Um, and so Paul says, although you have literally 10,000 guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I became your father in Christ through the gospel. So Paul acknowledges, though you may have many other people that are your guides, and that's okay. Paul isn't saying they can't learn from anyone else. He certainly would approve of them learning from Apollos. He certainly would approve of them learning from Peter. If they could get a hold of Peter's letters, he certainly would approve of them reading Peter's letters. He understands Peter is an apostle in every right, just as Paul is as well. So Paul is okay with them learning from other individuals, and he recognizes that there probably are other people in their life who are influencing their life. But Paul reminds them, that he gave birth to them. He means that in the sense that Paul planted the church. Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. Paul was the one who first shared Christ with them, who led them to Christ, who planted the church, who established the church, who discipled them and trained them for at least a year and a half before he moves on. In fact, he reminds them of that in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I planted and Apollos watered. I planted the church in Corinth. And then Apollos watered the church with additional teaching after my departure. He says in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Paul throws this in there. He reminds them of this for one reason. He's not trying to throw it in their face. He's not saying, look, you owe me something. Paul wants them to understand this simple truth. There is no one who cares about the church in Corinth more than Paul because he planted that church. Paul feels the greatest responsibility and obligation to that church because he's the one who gave birth to them. And so he loves them as his own children. And he believes he has that right, therefore, to speak into their lives. If anybody has the right to speak into their lives, it is Paul. Because Paul is their spiritual father. 
and they are his spiritual children. So like a good parent, Paul then says in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now there may be others that they can learn from. There may be others whose examples they can follow and they can be influenced by, but he wants them to primarily follow his example. Because Paul is the one who first brought the gospel to them. Paul is the one who first instructed them about Christ, the person and work of Christ, the life of Christ, the character of Christ. So Paul says, follow my example. And it's great that, you know, Paul, like a good parent, like the ideal parent, doesn't say, you know, follow my teaching. Do as I say. He says, follow my example. Do what I do. Live the way I live. Behave the way I behave. And so for that reason, he says in verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord, here's why, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In other words, Paul says, look, in case you have forgotten, I know it's been a while since I've been with you, in case you have forgotten how I live, how I behave, how I conduct myself, the things that I teach, I'm sending you Timothy. Because in Paul's world, there is probably no one who knew Paul better than Timothy, possibly Luke, because Luke and Timothy were his companions. They went almost everywhere with Paul. Paul is the one who led Timothy to the Lord, who discipled him himself. Paul is the one who planted the church in Ephesus and then installed Timothy in that church in order for him to put in place what remained and to establish elders within the church. You see that in the first opening verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, this is why I left you in Ephesus, Timothy. And so he says, I'm sending, I sent Timothy to you so that he can personally remind you of my life, of my behavior, of my teachings. It is interesting that he says, this is why I sent, um, this is why I sent you Timothy, sent past tense, as though Timothy is already there. However, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10, that he hasn't yet sent Timothy, because there Paul writes, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. When Timothy comes. So how do we reconcile these two where he says, this is why I sent you, Timothy? Simply this, Paul is planning to send Timothy, and we don't know where he's sending Timothy from. Timothy may be in Ephesus, and maybe he's going to send a letter to Ephesus and say, Timothy, I need you to leave there and go over to Corinth because they need your help, and here are my instructions. He's planning to send Timothy, and so Paul is writing chapter 4 as though Timothy has arrived. So when they're reading this, Paul is imagining that as they are reading this, this is why I sent you Timothy. Oh, that's why you're here. 
Now we understand, right? As Timothy is standing there next to whoever's reading, or maybe he's seated in the congregation. So Paul addresses to them why he has sent Timothy in this letter. Timothy is to remind them of how Paul lives, how he behaves, and what his teaching is like, as he says, everywhere in every church. So it seemed to me, if this is what Paul wants Timothy to do, because if he's going to tell the church in Corinth, the imitators of me, okay, well, what does that look like? It's been a long time since we've seen Paul. So Paul says, I'm sending Timothy to you to remind you of what I'm like so that you can imitate my behavior. It seemed to me that this would be a good opportunity for us to take a look at a snapshot of Paul's life. And that's what I want to do over the next few minutes. I want to look at a few verses here and there that give us a snapshot of what Paul was like. And the first place I want to look is Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, and we'll look at a few verses. Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving instructions to the the elders uh, in Ephesus. He is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, It's been prophesied that he's going to suffer uh, arrest and persecution, so He honestly does not know if he will ever see them again. And so this is a very difficult uh, meeting between him and the elders of the church there. And so he gives them some of these final instructions, or what he thinks may be his last words to the church in Ephesus. And there's a lot there. It's it's, uh, verses uh, 18 to the end of the chapter. We're not going to look at all of it. But in verse 19, Paul says this. Well, we'll start in the middle of verse 18, the beginning of the sentence. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. How? You yourselves know how I lived among you. Okay, how, Paul? How did you live among us? Verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, serving the Lord with all humility. Paul was an extremely humble person. We'll see that in a few moments. Paul truly only cared about two things, glorifying God and that which was best for the saints. And the lost, I should say three things, reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But doing what is best for others and doing what will bring most glory to God, those are the two things that he cared about. Loving people and loving God. And so he served with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to him. Paul poured himself out for the glory of God in his life life. He goes on to say in verse 20, how we did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Paul said, I didn't hold back. If you needed to hear it, even if it was painful, I said it. If you needed to know it in order to grow in your faith and in your sanctification, I shared it with you. 
I taught it to you. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. That is in public and in private as I sat at your homes. So Paul was the kind of individual who was ever speaking about Christ and teaching Christ. Whether it was in public or if you invited him to dinner. So Paul, what do you think about the weather? I don't really care about the weather. Let's talk about Christ. What do you know about Christ? How much are you reading in the Bible? What are you reading? Let's talk about that. Paul was not into small talk. He was not into chit-chat. Paul did not waste any opportunity in declaring to them the whole counsel of God. He goes on to say in verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks. Paul had a heart for the lost. In every town, he went into the synagogue first. And if they listened, great. If they drug him out and bounced stones off of his head, so be it. He then went to the Gentiles. But Paul's heart truly broke for the unbelieving world. He wanted people to know Christ. He wanted people to hear the gospel. And he did not waste an opportunity in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. And he did not wait for opportunities either. He went into the synagogue That's a hostile environment. You know, for Paul to do that would be like one of us walking into an an Islamic school, standing up in a group of Muslims and saying, I got something to say. I got something I want to share. Let me talk to you about Jesus. It's the same environment. Yet that's what Paul did. Verse 22 to 24 He goes on to say this, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Paul was driven by the Holy Spirit. He was the kind of person that if God opened up a door, even if it didn't make sense, he was going to step through it. That's where God wants me to go. I'm going. I don't know why. It doesn't matter. God's opened up an opportunity. That's where I'm headed. Not knowing what will happen to me there, He had no idea. doesn't matter. This is where God is leading me. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Listen to this. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was Paul. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. Paul did not care about himself. He only cared about glorifying God. He only cared about pleasing God. He did not care about his comforts. He didn't care about his possessions. He didn't care about his bank account. He only cared about glorifying God and reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was Paul. 
Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, Paul is in a Roman prison. He does not know if he will get out of prison. He might die there or he might be set free. He has no idea. And yet he writes in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. While he's in prison, there are people outside in Rome. Some of them are preaching the gospel for the right reasons. Others are maybe your first century social gospel preachers doing it out of envy and rivalry. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They want to harm me. They want to discredit me. How would we respond to something like that? Look at how Paul responds. What then? How should I respond to this, Paul says? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul says, that's all I care about. Even if they're preaching the gospel for evil reasons, seeking to do me harm, if if any part of what they say is gospel truth, Jesus became human and died on the cross for your sins, that's it. The gospel's been put out there. Whatever they say next, Paul says, doesn't matter. The gospel's been proclaimed. And Paul says in that, I'll rejoice. He has joy in prison because God is being glorified. Now we know what he meant in Acts chapter 20. I count my life of no value, nor is precious to myself, only that God be glorified. Paul also was a person who was immensely grateful to God and was brutally honest with himself. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul's not just speaking... Platitudes, he's not exaggerating or using hyperbolic language. Paul truly believed, I'm the worst of all sinners. If there was anybody that does not deserve to be saved, it's me. Of whom I am the foremost. Of all the evil people in the world, Paul says, I am the worst. We could learn a lot from Paul's example. Paul was so thankful to 
for what Christ had done for him. It drove him to extreme behavior. And he was so brutally honest with himself. He recognized how sinful he truly is and the depths from which God had truly saved him. For that reason, Paul was head over heels in love with Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue to get a snapshot of the life of Paul. Just a snapshot. I'd encourage you someday, study the life of Paul. Go through, look up every verse, every passage that deals with his life, and uh, you'll be blessed by it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul writes this, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If you think we're out of our minds, us apostles, it's for God. If we are in our right minds, it's for you. If you think we're sane and we sound sane, it is for your sake. Here's why. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls my behavior. Like a puppet on a string, the love of Christ controls me. I cannot help myself. I cannot help the way I live. I cannot help the way I behave. The love of Christ controls us. Here's why. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says, if you think I'm an extreme zealot, it's only because I look at the cross of Christ, I look at my own sinfulness, and I cannot believe he would do this for me, and it compels me to live my life for the glory of Christ. He deserves it all. That was Paul. For this reason, Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he'll say again, be imitators of me as I follow Christ. You see, they didn't have the opportunity to see Christ, to know him in person. They don't even have the Gospels to read about Christ. But they have Paul. And Paul says, follow my example, and you will be well on your way on the right track, to being on the right track, to going in the right direction. But then in verses 18 and 19, Paul switches gears a bit. And he says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. In other words, Paul wants them to know whoever these people are that are stirring up the pot in Corinth, that are leading you down the wrong road, he wants them to know, don't think that all I'm going to do is write a letter. I am coming. I will be there in person. And he's going to find out not just what they're saying, because talk is cheap. 
Anybody can talk the talk. He is going to find out their power. Verse 19 and 20, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I have found out not to talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Why? For the kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. The proof is in how the words of these individuals transform lives. That's the proof. That's the power of God. That is the evidence of the power of God. Paul has already talked about that in verse in chapter 118. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. It is the power to transform lives. He'll say it again in verse 24. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then he'll repeat it again in chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I didn't come to you with just this great oratory speech. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest. So that your faith won't be grounded in the wisdom of men, in mere words, but in the power of God. If people embrace a message, but that message does not transform their lives to live for the glory of Christ, it is a false message. It's a false message. Paul says, I'm going to find out not what their talk is, but I'm going to find out the power of their talk, if there's any there. He concludes with verse 21. Or I'm sorry, he concludes with, uh, yes, verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. In other words, it's a soft admonition. Straighten up, because I am coming. But the point, however, that Paul is driving home throughout this entire section is that we ought to strive to be imitators of Paul. That's a message not just for the church in Corinth. It's a message for us. Paul wrote the very words of God. This is what God wanted him to write. We ought to be imitators of Paul who strove to live his life just as Christ lived his. In other words, if you're not sure what the Christian life should look like, or if you often think to yourself, you know, I know we're supposed to live like Christ, but I can't live like Christ. He's the Son of God. He's perfect. He was sinless. I can't do that. But Paul was human. Paul is the closest example that we can ever come to a mere human being living nearly like Christ. Paul was human. He was a sinful creature just like you and I. Yes, we may not be able to live like Christ, but we can live like Paul if we desire to. 
and if we pursue it. Strive to be like Paul. Strive to be like Paul. And if you do that, you will be well on your way to being like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your for your word that is trustworthy and true and authoritative. And Father, we pray that we would heed the admonition of the Apostle Paul in our own lives. That yes, we would strive to be like Christ ultimately, but that Christ is the Son of God and that he was sinless and perfect in every way ought not to be an excuse for us to not try. Because you, in your divine wisdom, have given us the Apostle Paul. And you, by your Holy Spirit, you, Lord God, have instructed us to be imitators of Paul as he is an imitator of Christ. And as we've looked at a snapshot of what Paul was like, Father, so many of us fall short of even being like Paul, who was a mere human. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us. I pray that you would give us a greater hunger, a greater desire, a greater passion. I pray that you will squash the sin of laziness in our lives and the sin of pride, caring too much about what people think of us. And I pray that like Paul, we could get to a point where we truly are able to say that we count our lives of no value nor as precious to ourselves but only that Christ may be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. So we go to the Lord's Supper this morning. If you're visiting with us, the Lord's Supper, we take it every Sunday in our church, primarily because we believe that that is biblical and ought to be done in following the example of the New Testament church. But the Lord's Supper reminds us of the example that we really um, ultimately are to follow, that Christ stepped down from his throne. He set aside his robe and he set aside his crown and became a servant for us, was willing to give himself for us and for our benefit to the point of death. I bet I'm right in saying that nobody in this room has served someone else to the point of death. But that's what Christ did for us. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. That this is what Christ, this is the extent to which Christ was willing to serve our deepest needs. How far should we be willing to serve the needs of those around us? and to give God great, great glory. If you're visiting with us this morning, know that the Lord's